Welcome to the Return to the Forgotten Path podcast. Join us on this journey to travel onto a forgotten pathway that leads to rest and restoration. This podcast is a weekly Bible study of this week's Torah portion, also known as the Parsha, or section of weekly readings according to the Jewish annual Torah cycle. Every week, we will have a discussion filled with both historical and cultural viewpoints as it pertains to the return to the forgotten path that is increasingly happening all around the world. We will review and share opinions from the weekly Torah. The Torah is also known as the Pentateuch. It is the first five books of the Bible and also referred to as the Mosaic Law. We will also review the Half Torah and Brit Hadashah readings. The Half Torah is the study of the prophets, and the Brit Hadashah is the Hebrew for the Renewed Covenant or New Testament readings. For those who ask, what is the forgotten path? Jeremiah 6, 16 puts it this way. This is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths where, ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. But you said we will not walk in it. Our podcast seeks to point our listeners to that ancient old path through the study of the Bible from the perspective of the Torah, which is properly translated as instructions. Again, today, joining you in studio and leading this discussion is... I'm R.J. Cox, Laverne's husband, and as she likes to say, partner in crime. Thank you. And I'm Laverne Cox, also known as, and my Hebrew name as Avivi. Welcome to this week's podcast. This week's Torah portion is... Noach, which means comfort. And it is taken from Genesis chapter 6, from verse 9 through chapter 11, verse 32. For the Haftarah portion, it is from Isaiah chapter 54, 1 through chapter 55, verse 5. And for the Brit Hashah... It's from Matthew 24, verses 36 through 44, Luke 17, 26 through 37, and Acts chapter 2, 1 through 16. Now, let's begin with the blessing before Torah study. The blessing before Torah study. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of the Torah. Amen. Would you be so kind to do the short overview of today's study? I'm going to have to go off the top of my head because my resources got broken today. Uh, this portion uh, covers the life of Noah, the flood that we know about, from so many studies and after that the Tower of Babel it also goes into the history of his sons and their genealogy afterwards and that covers the meat and potatoes of this portion. Thank you. All right the first line of today's study begins in Genesis chapter 6 verse 9. Would you be so kind as to read the first portion? Genesis 6, verses 9, 10, and 11. Thanks. Here is the history of Noah and his generation. Noah was a man righteous and wholehearted. Noah walked with God. Noah fathered three sons, Shem, Ham, and Yephet. The earth was corrupt before God. The earth was filled with violence. And this begins the, the study of the Parshat Noah. I likened this parashat to the beginning of all my studies and um, my Bible journey, my Bible study journey, because it was the first one where I pursued it from what Yeshua said in Matthew 25, as it was in the days of Noah. What did you gain in your study and what was the motivation behind this study for you? For me, all my studies revolve around one central point. I don't have a reference like that. Um, maybe it would be good if I did. I am always looking for action points that I can use in my life because I'm very mindful of what I do that can hopefully be a light to somebody else. So for this one, 
I see this one guy fighting against a world that has gone corrupt and imagine how difficult it must have been to hold a standard where literally no one else around you is willing to even consider the train of thought. And with the grace that Noah found with God, it seems like his wife and sons got a free ticket on the ark because of him, not so much because they were righteous as well. So can you be that example, even when everyone within your household is seemingly going in a different direction? Can you row hard enough to offset their pushing in the other direction to where God is still pleased with what you do? And that's the point that I took from it all. Um, when I started this study, for me, uh, I really was having a hard time this year because because it was the precursor to all of my Bible studies. So many times when I revisit this section of the Bible, it comes with a flood of, of uh, this history. And it's been about 15 to 20 years of studying this from both the Christian perspective and the Jewish perspective. And, you know, the last two years have been picking up on some of the like Midrashic extra biblical books like the book of Jasher. So there's always a flood that comes at me when I start to do this particular portion of the study. And so this time around, when I started to read it, I started to look at what wasn't there. Okay. And what wasn't there was not ever my prior um, perspective when reading this. And I'm going to kind of talk about what I did see that was not originally there that I never took notice of, but I'm also going to recommend for those who are just starting on their biblical journey and you want to first get into the meat of what is actually written, I would recommend a few different sites. My favorite teachers really have been in this season of my life, you know, Pastor Mark Biltz from El Shaddai Ministries, um, Pastor Rabbi, I mean, me, Rabbi Shapira from Ahavada Me Ministries. Uh, they are my, you know, one of my two favorite uh, online ministries, and they have really great resources for uh, Torah portions online uh, through YouTube or their particular websites, which are great. I also have been using um, Blue Letter Bible because it does have like an interlinear tool that gives me the meanings of some of these words. Uh, because if I go from my Bible, which is New King James Version, to one of my prior earlier Bibles, which is the King James or the, um, the Amplified Bible, I find that there's different words being used. I'm not always clear as to the context of which one of these are the right ones, or which word is correct, which context is the appropriate one. I, I go to the original, and the original is written in Hebrew. I'm not as seasoned of a Hebrew reader. I'm learning and I'm getting better every year, but I am still in need of some assistance and tools. And so with the Blue Letter Bible, I can find the Gesinius or the Strong's Concordance for all the words that are being used. And that does tend to help. Uh, if you are more interested in learning from a, the, the Jewish perspective, sometimes during the week, I'll go to an uh, a Bible app uh, that is written from the Jewish, um, both Ashkenazic and Sephardic perspective, and it's called Safaria. It's spelled S-E-F-A-R-I-A, and Safaria not only has the not only has the Jewish uh, Torah portions broken out week by week, but they'll also have additional commentaries, both the Talmud. Um, as well as you know, very popular rabbis and their, their books and commentaries as it relates to the Torah portions week by week, line by line, a really ready reference for anyone who is interested in having those deep dives and studies. And sometimes with the Midrashic link, for example, it'll take you to some of the actual extra biblical texts that um, are often referenced maybe like in the book of Kings or the, the, the in Chronicles, for example, these all these extra biblical texts like the one I mentioned earlier, the book of Jasher or the book of Enoch that was mentioned in the new renewed covenant. So all those books really do 
tend to add to this, this really in-depth study that you can have with the book of Noah. But this year, I didn't have any of that. I didn't have the guidance to go back to any of those things that I've learned for the past you know, 10 to 15 years. What I went into was reading the text and looking at what is actually there and what is not there. The first one that actually you know, stuck out to me was exactly what you mentioned about um, the, that Noah is, finds favor and that when he finds favor, that favor is bestowed upon Shem, Ham, and Jephthah and their wives as well, and his wife as well. And that grace now gives them, as you call it, the free ticket into being saved in the ark. So not only is Noah going to be saved, but his family is now being extended that grace. Uh, another thing that I looked at, which I've always seen, the ark is made out of gopher wood. And I found that gopher, um, is the, the meaning of the word there is actually like a plan word. It's actually a, a word that means like a house, gopher wood. Um, if you think about what a gopher tends to do, um, they tend to build houses and dams. So it's a type of wood that also means, you know, a place of a house or a, a set place of restoration or rest. So it's like Noah, who means rest, is building a, a ship, the ark that, mean, you know, that is built out of resting wood or, you know, the wood that represents rest or a house. So it's very, you know, picturesque and line with what shuvu returning means and the fact that this means not only a place of safety for his family but restoration as well so those play on the words did come out to me um in this study this year okay i get that um i didn't play along with the hebrew and the play on words as much this time around i guess i stuck with what was in front of me, word on the word. And like I said, my key verses were in this generation, Noah was a righteous man and wholehearted. Noah walked with God. He spoke about he fathered three sons. And then in verse 22, chapter six, verse 22, this is what Noah did. He did all that God ordered him to do. So for me, and personally saying, I'm a man under authority, whose instructions am I following and why am I following them? Finding these types of examples helps me to keep pursuing righteousness in my life because I know that there's a lot of people that go through challenges and I can look at their lineages and go, if they can do it, I can do it and I keep pushing. Uh, I can look definitely to the study and the play on the words and find something else to improve my mind on, right? Right now, I've been very literal. Yeah, and in regards to that, I think that that is wise. At every stage of our development, God always is speaking to us at the, the place where he wants to meet us. So for me, this season is just different. Um, but last year, I was very much on those understanding the backstory, you know? So last year, I went into what type of world was this pre-Diluvian world? And I went into the backstory uh, uh, reading the... Jewish books, the extra biblical books of Enoch and Jasher, and they really did point out a world where man had corrupted themselves um, to the point that the natural inclinations and the natural alignments were all off. Uh, most people automatically think sodomy, you know, like in Sodom and Gomorrah, but no, the, the, when the scripture says that their intent, which is from last week's Torah portion, was always to ra or evil, continually, it just means that the, nothing that was within the parameters of, of the world of creation was good enough just as it is. When God created everything, he said, tov, good. But instead of them seeing tov, good, they were trying to even corrupt whatever their minds and their eyes could see. So every aspect of the world was open for manipulation to removing it from tov, good. And so that's where I feel like this man called Noah, who is in a generation that is doing this continually and being found righteous is amazing because he is standing against a, a tide of not only thought, but also behaviors. And he's saying no to it. And even if so, to a degree, you could say within his own household, because he's found righteous, as you mentioned, and not his entire household. So it wasn't like a... Uh, 
everyone is going along, well, to a degree they are going along because they do enter the, the, the arc with him, right? But the other aspect of this is it doesn't mean that they were all righteous, that they were all practicing, that they were all following the same thing that Noah was. And that's very difficult. I mean, I, I, I imagine this is a man who really has a, a love for the way of God and who God is to do such a thing when the, the, it's a contrary thought, it's a contrary practice, you know, an entire world. Uh, and that's, that is not only to be applauded, but it's also why God calls him Zadok, Zadok a righteous man, because you are standing against a tide of, of witnesses saying, no, don't, don't, why, why should you do that? And um, he does, he does anyway. So yeah, as we prepare to go into the next chapters where now the Noah and his family is going into the ark. Uh, what did you see within the, the chapter of the Great Flood um, that stood out to you? Well, like I was saying to you earlier, the big thing that stuck out with me was the fact that I failed this Bible trivia quiz. You know, the rabbi asked today, hey, who knows how long the flood lasted? Everybody says 40 days. It was like, um, no, it was actually closer to a year. So I had to go back and you know, read chapter 7, Genesis 7, verse 11, and you read, well, sorry, 12, it rained on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. So you figure, there you go. But then you keep reading and you realize, oops, 17 says the flood was 40 days on the earth. The water grew higher, flooded the ark, so it was lifted up and it keeps going and keeps going. You get to verse 24 and it says the water held power over the earth for 150 days so the rain fell for 40 days the flood waters kept rising and then after all of that was said and done it stayed flooded for 150 days and then genesis 8 you get into verse 3 and after 150 days the water start to go down and then it keeps going verse by verse until you finally get to Genesis 8, 13. By the first day of the first month of the 601st year, Noah was 600 when he went into the ark. And now in the 601st year, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked. And yes, the surface of the ground was dry. It was on the 27th day of the second month that the earth was dry. So now, I failed that quiz. Can't, can't ask for a retest, can't go, oops, you were wrong, teacher. Nope, mm -hmm. it was right there in the book and I missed it. But once again, going back to what you were saying about what's there and what wasn't there, sometimes you miss things in plain sight because you think you knew the story and you didn't realize that you didn't read far enough to get the full understanding. So yeah, good life lesson for me. Yeah, also very interesting as well. Um, one of the things that was said today that also kind of not flies in the face of my understanding, I understood the seven and the two uh, in terms of the animals, but I never understood them as peers. Okay, okay so when it says uh, you shall take with you seven of every clean animal, a male and his female, that was male and female, one pair. That's one, I'm gonna count one. I thought it was just seven. They, he took seven, that's seven peers again, reading what's actually there versus what you understood. So I thought there was seven lambs, for example. So mm -hmm. some one of the lambs was going to be, you know, the sacrificed one because he didn't have a partner. That's how I saw it, you know. So again, not reading what is actually there uh, so, definitely pulled it out again to me. I'm sorry, what were you saying? So yeah, three pairs and one standby animal. Standby, yeah, that, that, that was going to be the, the, the scapegoat more or less. That, that, mm -hmm. that animal that didn't have his pair was going to be the sacrificed one. That's how I always kind of perceived it. I knew about the fact that there was two of the unclean ones and seven of the unclean, but I just used to just automatically presume that the, the that seventh animal was going to be the sacrificed one because mm -hmm. I was counting one, two, three, four, five, six, seven of the total, not seven pairs. Um, another thing that, you know, the, when it comes to Noah and the, the years, uh, the, the verse six brings out, he was 600 years old when the flood waters were on the earth. And then in verse, um, 
I think it's 11. I'm looking at right now. Verse 11 says, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, you know, the 17th day, on that day, all the fountains of the deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were open. So those are like, you know, is that when it started or did it start before? So it's just like, what, which one are we really referencing? But you do see the the 600th year Noah's life, the second month, at least in um, chapter seven. And when you mentioned just now in chapter eight, when the flood is ending and he's coming out, it's the 600th year and the second month when he takes off the covering. And I think that was the, what verse was that that you read just last? Uh, that was 814 in the second month and the 27th day of the month. So it's very interesting sometimes to kind of go back in and, and review it so that you can really know what you are reading on the surface. But then this came out to me when I was thinking about the flood and um, also the things that are there, but also not, not really paying attention to. I never really paid attention to that there was three bird flights. I never paid attention to that there was a raven sent out and never returned. And then there was um, the dove that goes out, can't find anything and comes back. Mm -hmm. Then he goes out this second time um, and he comes back with an olive leaf. Then he goes out the, the, the fourth bird flight is when he, the, the dove goes out and he does not come back. So there's four different flights of birds that are like the test before um, for Noah and his family as to what's happening outside of the ark. Um, and I always used to think of it um, in terms of what happens in verse 18. I'm just thinking that Noah and his sons are just waiting for God to say, come on out, you know? <laughs> um, but that's not obviously, what was all of that? What was all the bird things about? What was the, the, the sending out of the birds for if they literally sit in the ark until God spoke, speaks to them and says, okay, Noah, you and your wife and your sons, you can come out the ark now and bring out the animals. What was all the bird stuff about? So that was uh, honestly part of my journey and my studies is I start recognizing I, I don't question what is literally already right in front of me. Um, if, this is, if this is set there for my good and for my understanding, why is it mentioned? And so one of the things that um, comes back up in the uh, many times in Torah study is, where have you seen this before? Mm -hmm. And when you go into the renewed covenant, it's also true that you don't really understand the Brit Hadashah or the renewed covenant teachings if you never really paid attention to what happened first when you read this in the first go round. And so in my original readings of all of these Bible studies, I was more so get to the point in the story. What's the story about? And I, I really didn't pay attention to the details and the details do matter because those details are what connects the picture. When you see um, the son of man um, being baptized and the dove descending, where did that dove come from upon him? You know, where did that dove come from? Some people say that that's the same dove that Noah sent out that never returned. Now that dove shows back up again in the, the blessing on the, the Messiah's life after he is baptized or mikvah um, with John the Baptist. But we see the patterns of things if we pay attention to the pattern of what is actually written. And that's why certain things are not there. And that's another thing too. What's there is there for a reason and what's not in the story is not there for a reason as well. And there's certain parts of the story that are not there. And why is it not there is also for our growth as we are studying these teachings, because that's what Torah is. It's instructions, it's teachings, and it helps us to better understand God's plan and his ways so that we can, looking at impractical, imperfect people, still get a glimpse of who he is. And so I just encourage everyone to join in on this return, because part of it is different for each of us. Very, very, very true. Oh, so the next portion of our study is God's covenant with creation. All right, so you're talking about where he reiterates, yeah. which uh, verse nine. So he blesses Noah, repeats the same blessing he gave Adam, 
And now in the beginning, and it says, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will be upon every wild animal, every bird, every creature, all the fish, all been handed over to you. Every moving thing that lives will be food for you. Now that's the difference. Um, before it was just the green leafy things. You're a vegetarian in chapter two, you're now a carnivore, omnivore in chapter nine. Every moving thing that lives will be food for you. Just as I gave you green plants before, so now I will give you everything. Only prohibition, don't eat flesh with his blood. But everything else is every moving thing that now lives. So Yeah, and sometimes that that is also that moving thing is also taking out of context because it doesn't mean that you know God was commanding us to eat things that were not good for us. And I would encourage more people if you wanted to get into the exact you know, what does that word phrase there mean? What, what is a moving thing as described there? Um, it is Strong's Concordance 7431. It's remez. And remez is a, it's a certain type of thing. Okay. It's a, you know, so kind of go back into the, um, the exact context of what is mentioned and learn from it. I will also encourage you to read uh, the, the Gesenius for these things because they are distinguished within the context of scripture. So uh, one person says remez can also be sea animals, for example. So it depends on where you're going for your definitions to get the definition as to what God just gave over to Adam to eat. There is always one of the things about that was mentioned today about Judaism that's different from Christianity is Judaism is asking more questions. There is no definitive, oh, that's only what it could have meant you're looking at the context of the original word and you're looking at, okay, how could that word have been applied in the error it was given? And then ultimately, how is it also being applied as you're going through the study of these teachings, not only in this book of Genesis or the beginnings, but all as we continue to see that word show up throughout the, the Torah. So look into it. It's really a, an interesting study if you wanted to do a bigger deep dive on that, but yeah. Um, after the, the chapter nine, um, I call it the, not the blessing per se, but the, the covenant, mm -hmm. this covenant that's cut and we get this, you know, seed time and harvest and these things shall remain as long as the earth is, um, remains. And I think about that because one of the blessings that has been helpful to me on my journey is what is mentioned while the earth remains, there is always a seed time and a harvest. And from the, I call it the, the prophetic or they call it, what is it called? The prosperity schools. And from the charismatic Christian schools of thought, they see this in line of what you, you sow, you shall reap. And what I tend to also liken this to is there's this time, according to Ecclesiastes, there's a time for everything under heaven. You know, there's a time to be born, there's a time to die, there's a time for it to rejoice, there's a time to mourn. And so you have to look at while the earth remains, and while these things are not ceasing, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, day and night, these things shall not cease. The promise also is that God's covenant that was originally uh, enacted from the beginning, the from the original blessing to the the promise to redeem us in Genesis 3.15 to now this new covenant that he's cutting with Noah, this is still a continuation. None of these are ceasing. None of them end. They're just a continuation. And so there's a season that you see them being manifest. And so when you see, as the scripture says in chapter nine, there's a bow in the sky, we are always reminded not only of the fact that God's promise is that he will never destroy the earth again with a flood, but we're also promised that while the earth remains, these things too will, will also remain. Very true. And uh, going back to the same rainbow conversation, you know, it's a great reminder to remember that the original purpose of the rainbow was to be a reminder to us and to God of the covenant that was made between him and us. And every living creature. So the water will never again become a flood to destroy everything. Sometimes you need those reminders to recognize that 
as crazy as things might get, you're not going to experience the same punishment. Doesn't mean there's not going to be any punishment. Doesn't mean that there's not going to be any what's the word consequence. natural consequence, mm-hmm. but it won't be the same one. And understanding that, remembering that helps you to know how to a check yourself when you see these reminders and glimpses in the sky to go, okay, what do I need to change? Am I doing okay? Am I going on the right path? And then remember, even if you're not, you can always shuvu return, get back on track, and walk forthrightly. You're right. And it's kind of likened to the, I think the Psalms and the Proverbs, as well as the Renewed Covenant, kind of, there's a few scriptures that say, judge yourself, lest you be judged. Mm-hmm. And that's, it, you don't want to wait for uh, the, the final judgment to, or to be so deceived in your own heart that you felt that the judgment would not come. There's a seed time and a harvest. As long as the earth is here, there's a seed time and a harvest. There's a consequence that's coming for what you sow is what you're going to reap. So be mindful of judging yourself lest you wait for the judgment, the final judgment. That is either one of reward because you've been following what the, the, the teachings have been, the signs that have been placed, the markers that have been put along throughout history that the Lord has given to us to know which way to walk in, or it's those who are turning a blind eye and the markers are still there. They're showing up in the sky. They're showing up in the stories of mankind. They have shown up in every generation and you wait for a judgment of a natural consequence that is not desirable. So shavu return also means to awaken yourself to possibly what is a new world for your understanding. Because now Noah and his sons are in this whole new world. It's not the same world that they were in. Yes, it's the same earth, but this is a different earth that they now have to repopulate. And what they do determines how the earth is going to go. And now in the next preceding verses, we find out with you know, the next chapters, we find out exactly how that what happens. So the next um, section in my in my study was Noah and his sons. Would you like mm-hmm. to take it from there? Well, I'll touch quickly on a set of verses that have historically been used to misrepresent certain consequences to certain ethnicities. And to be very brief about it, I'm just going to stick to what the verses say and go from there. So Genesis 9, if you start with verse 22, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father shamefully exposed, went out and told his two brothers. Shem and Yephet took a cloak, put it over their shoulders, and walking backwards, went in and covered a naked father. Their faces were turned away so that, that they did not see their father lying there shamefully exposed. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him, and he said, Curses be Canaan, who will be a servant of servants to his brothers. Now, hold on a second. Noah had three sons, Yephet, Ham, and Shem. I named them backwards from the way it was written just to get the emphasis. But the curse, quote unquote, goes on Canaan, Ham's son. Canaan wasn't there. His three sons were the ones who went and covered him up. Why did grandson get cursed? Well, it's actually two of the sons. Went to cover him up. Right, right. Two yeah. of the three. Ham went, he saw it, he told the other brothers, the other brothers came back and they covered him. So why did grandson get into this? He got in trouble for a crime he didn't commit. Then the blessing goes on. Shem says Canaan's going to be his servant and large yet Yafet. Yafet will live in the tents of Shem. Canaan's going to be their servant. Still, the grandson had nothing to do with it. But when you also take that and look into why that occurred, also think on when you hear a lot of historical reference on certain peoples were predestined to be enslaved because the children of Ham were cursed. It doesn't say that in the scripture. And so going back to what Laverne was saying about questioning why all of these things have been said, why they've been said, who's been benefited, and 
what to do now to change that. Once you start to realize what's really said, you can start to investigate and diligently inquire on how to make right a lot of wrongs that have been taught to us and that we don't pass on to another generation. You're right. And, and part of my journey was to figure it out because sometimes it's not interesting to some people and they don't really care why there was a curse pronounced. They don't, they read through this. It's like, let's get to the other part of the story. What else happens with humankind? And they, they bypassed it thinking is of no, of no consequence, but it really does. There is a consequence here. And what happens in this Canaan line, this particular Canaan line, it is not by accident that when you go to chapter 10 and you look at the children of Canaan, every last one of the children of Canaan, and I'll read them real quickly, the, the Heth, the Jebusite, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Arvites, the Zemorites, and the Hamathites are the children, or Sidon as well, are the children of Canaan. Literally, it's like a who's who's list of enemies of Israel. So the context of what is actually being stated here, where there's a curse against this particular line, it's, it's a familial line. And in every generation, this familial line um, becomes a warrior against what God had placed in the land, or you could not only in the land of Israel per se, but in the earth to be a sign. They are warring against that sign being light. And so what is being cursed here is, well, it does not make consent, any sense to us, I would add that if you were to take the time and do a really good study using those extra biblical sources, you'll see that the, the reason that God only pronounces the curse is for, and the fact that there is a blessing on, the, on Shem and Jepheth is in relationship to this curse on Canaan was in re regards to these family lines becoming light and helpful and creative and, and sources of, of good, whereas this other line, Canaan's line, becomes like a, a contradictory um, source of wickedness and evil and darkness. So that's really what's happening here. And I ask you to take some more time and go into the details of this. There are also some who have, um, don't get lost in the genealogy per se, because there is deep genealogy in regards to Canaanites. Um, because the Canaanite line also does produce the new line of Nephilim in the earth. So there's a lot of extra that comes out of this. Like, you know, the question would be, where does the Nephilim come from? If, you know, this only, if the Nephilim died, it, you know, they were pre-Diluvian, they were, you know, during the flood, they must have died. Where does these new giants come from? So uh, there's a lot that this can go into. But stay on the context of what you're studying on. I adjure you, follow the breadcrumbs because the breadcrumbs are there to explain what's happening throughout the journey of mankind as it pertains to Shuvu, return, returning to the instructions, returning to the blessing of what God had originally uh, imagined and, and desired for us in creation. And so we're getting the understanding and a warning sign here with this cursing that that Canaanite line is a problem. It's going to be a problem for us. It's going to be a problem that you're going to have to um, be aware of because your family lines are going to have to live in, in uh, conflict with them. And so as you go into the next table of nations, there is, or that's how it's called by Josephus, there is a list of 70, you could say, grandchildren that descend from Noah, uh, from the three sons, uh, Jepheth, Shem, and Ham. Um, and the, the order that they are given um, is very interesting, at least for me. What did you get out of chapter 10? Chapter 10 for me was a whole lot of history, not a whole lot of application. I did not study all of those different names and the histories of all those peoples. So I read it all and I got to chapter 11 
So you got to tell me what's on your mind for chapter 10. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this ties into two things for me. Um, the, the Josephus Table of Nations or the 70 nations that were, um, that from, from which all peoples of the earth uh, descend from, likened to me what I mentioned last week, where the number 70 is very uh, powerful and an interesting number. And if you wanted to take the time and literally go sun by sun by sun to get to the number 70, it, it's it's a really good study because sometimes when I counted, I was like, how did he get to 70? I didn't see, I didn't see 70 as yet. Um, take your time. There's multiple resources, and, but there is a total of 70 people groups that are coming out of this and the location of where they originally um, went to reside. They did not all stay in the same place as are the case with the sons of Cush, um, the sons of Cush, which was the son of, of Ham. The sons of Cush uh, was Siva, Havila, Sapta, Rama, Sabetica, and the sons, um, and Cush and, and Nimrod. Okay, these are the sons of Cush, right? And so when it comes to where these children resided, even in terms of the extra biblical sources and historical context, they did not reside in just one place. They continued to move as mighty people and they, they built kingdoms and nations wherever they went. So although some people stayed in certain areas for the context of human history, no, they have not been, um, a people group that was just of one land. Mm. So, um, you know, besides what the train of thought has been passed on in history that all the Kushites were, you know, people of Africa, that is not the case. Because the the, the number one uh, descendant of, of Kush being Nimrod, he is the, the father or the, the mighty hunter, as he's called, um, that founds what is modern day Babel or Babylon. He, found, he fathers Iraq, which is like modern day Iraq. He's also the father of all uh, Akkad, Kelna, and in the land of Shinar. These are all places within the border of Iraq and Iran. So again, not necessarily aligned with what most people consider to be Cushitic people or black people, but we do find that these, this particular line is going uh, throughout the Middle East as well as into parts of Assyria. So from that land, it says that they went as far as Nineveh and Rehoboth, Ur, Rehoboth, Ur, and, and Kala, and Rezin. So we see that there's, these are principal cities that are being you know, founded by this Cushitic people. But yes, they also become known with North Africa as well, hmm. but not them alone, because the sons of Ham, you also have Mizraim and Put, and the sons of Mizraim are, are considered uh, the, the, the Libyans, for example, and also the Philistines, as well as the um, other people groups like that people say Mizraim are where the Egyptians directly descended from, although the exact line is not very clear. But you still have so many um, people groups that are not specific to just one area that are coming from uh, this particular line. So there isn't just, uh, as one person would say, okay, this line is the only line that produces uh, a people for this particular area. There are some distinctions, however, when it comes to the line of Japheth, where there are certain people groups that historically have remained in the area that they were originally um, aligned from the Genesis 10 table of nations. Uh, they have not gone very, very far, like the people of the Iberian areas. Um, the, the people, the Scythians, for example, what are like North, um, North Asia, closer to, I keep on saying, uh, Russia, like around that area, you know, Gogs and the Magog. Um, the Gogs are, or the Magogs are like the Mongolians, and sometimes the, um, some people would say the, the I, I'll go back to the North, like Russians again. Let me, let me say where I was um, before. But there's a lot of family groups that, if you look at the history of these people, this it's pretty interesting, pretty interesting. But what was more interesting is the land, the people of Shem, because in the people of Shem, 
I found that the, the line of Shem is like a line of the who's who of what's going on in the world at the time. Okay. Okay. So an example is when we compare the line of Shem to the line of Noah, it was not just a declaration of the individual's name, but also of the, the generation's name. So I wanted to compare that real quickly. So remember that the first man is Adam and his name means man. Mm -hmm. So that's the generation of mankind. You get it? Mm -hmm. And then he, he fathers, of course, Cain and Abel. And we already know what happens to them last week. But then we have Seth. And it means to be appointed or to set something in place. So that okay. is the generation of the appointed ones, and they are setting up things. And then you have the Enosh, which is means person and people. So this is when you know more people um, establish themselves on the earth. It is also said in Jewish context that in that particular generation, it says this is when people began to call upon the name of the Lord. It's also said in that generation of what's happening is that this is also when idol worship begins. People start to spread and they're trying to, um, there's a line that calls upon the name of God and there's a, another line that wants to reckon who God is through things. Okay. Okay. And then there is Canaan, meaning possession. And so this is when the land starts to grow on, you know, there's a, there's a line in, the, in Genesis that says that People started, began to corrupt, you know, uh, the, the people at that generation were growing corrupt in regards to certain um, behaviors. And then Mahali is a generation after Kenan, and it says praise to cheer and to shine. So this obviously is a generation looking to glorify um, either themselves or the, the things of God. So praise, shine. And then the Jared is a, the next line, and it means descended or to descend into. And we find that in the, the as a descent, he is the pre precedent to Enoch. And Enoch means to listen. And we find that he listened to the word of God and his generation, um, in his generation, and he was not because he was taken by God. So he, he met, not only heard of him, listened to him, but also walked along with him and did not die. And his child now, Methuselah, meant the man of javelin, the death of sword. And we, we find out that this man of javelin is actually a precursor. He's the sign that says that this, this line of mankind is coming to an end. That's what it's really about. And so when Lamech has, when Lamech has a child and he then, he's a child of Methuselah, Lamech's name is a strong man because this strong man brings into the world um, a, a, a person that is going to grant rest and comfort, which is what Noah means. So from each one of these men, they're also aligning themselves with the, the answer to whatever is correspondingly happening that's wicked and evil in the world. So too is the line of Shem. So with Shem, you have three lines before, or three groups before we get to the, the patriarch that everybody knows and loves, which is, um, or four lines. Let me just double check and read this real quickly. So we have Salah, mm -hmm. okay? Uh, yes, Salah. So it goes like this, Shem, fathers, Elam, Asher, Afax, Lud, and Aram. So that's the first generation of his children. The next generation is that Aram, um, fathers Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arfax, uh, one of the children of Shem, uh, fathers Salah. And Salah fathers Eber. And Eber fathers Peleg and Joktan. And Joktan fathers a whole litany of people. Um, the Almadad, Shelfeth, there's a long line here, um, as well as into Ophir. But then we have Terah, who is the, the um, comes in the line of Shem, and he is the father of, I believe, Terah, which gets us to chapter 11. 
I, I hope I kind of went up through that very quickly. Each one of these sons are de uh, declaring something that's happening in the genealogy of mankind, which I really want to get into, but we don't have time for. But I would encourage you to look at the meaning of each of the names of the sons of Shem, because each of them are connected to the Midrashic books that talk about that generation. So coming during the period of time where Peleg, for example, is alive, it, it's stated that the world, his name meaning um, separation or break, and during the period of Peleg's life is when the earth broke uh, or separated. And so the, the nations or the lines of, of what we call continents today happened during his time frame. So there's a lot going on in the time frames and the names of this particular line. So it's not just, you know, specific to what you know you and I are called names. It's also declarative of the the generation that they were born in. So Peleg um, uh, has a child, and the child is Ru. Ru has a child, and the child is Sarug. Sarug, and Ru um, they live. Uh, and then Sarug begets Nahor, and Nahor begets Terah. So that's, how many generations is that to get to the father of Abraham? So going back, we may have to count that up, but I think that's about six. Double check that number for me, guys, if you can. But the point is, we get to Terah, and Terah begets Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. And now we're getting to Terah's descendants. What did you get out of that study before we move into the conclusion of our Bible study together. Well, once again, going back to the accomplishments of those in th within your spiritual and familial lineage, knowing the principles that folks stood for and the actions they did helps you to understand why you gravitate towards certain subjects or you do things a certain way. You kind of learn those patterns and traits and find out where you got them from. So towards the end of chapter 11, when you start at verse 27, you go into the genealogy of Abraham's father, Terak. Terak had three sons, Abraham, then known as Avram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran fathered Abraham's famous nephew Lot, or Lot in English. So when Lot's father died, Terak took him in, Avram and Nakor took wives. When it was time to leave, Terak in verse 31 took his son Avram, his grandson Lot, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, Avram's wife, and then they left Irv de Castine to go to the land of Canaan. But they didn't get that far. When they came to Haran, they stayed there. And so now you've got a little bit of history as to who's coming up now in the next portion, but one of the forefathers of the Jewish faith. And many prayers start with, bless all you, Lord of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So you can start to understand, okay, where did this guy Abram be named Abraham came from and what, how did his story start? Yeah, and just kind of piggyback on that. It's eight fathers before Abraham, eight fathers. So he's like the new, he's a new generation, you know, mm -hmm. eight being new beginnings. So with the birth of Avram, I would love for you guys to take some time and just go back into the story, but it seems like what happened from Shem to Avram is that this generation, this generational line, which really is carrying, um, as most people say, the, the blessing of the light, the blessing of the truth, and the fact that Shem in many Jewish circles is likened to um, a school of thought that is maintaining the word of Adonai in the world. And mankind again has descended into evil practices, not necessarily as it was in the days of Noah, but they are definitely turning their back. They have gone back, they've gone back to idol worship. They've gone to 
um, calling on other things besides the true God. They have um, descended into practices that even when we see the father of Abraham uh, come into the picture, he is known to be uh, idol manufacturer. You know, that's what he's, that's his, his line of business. And so we're, we're trying to figure out like what happens in these eight generations. And they're the naming of each of these, which I did a study on, and I'm just gonna encourage everybody to do it rather than me tell it to you. Go in, get a nice little uh, blue letter Bible gateway type of uh, source and look at the meaning of the names of all the fathers on the Shem line and see if you can take some time and do some you know, book of Enoch readings or some book of Jasher readings to understand what's happening during this time frame after the flood. Because one would assume that after you've already gone through the Tower of Babel, you've already had experiences where you, mankind can, can relatively know quickly that there is obviously something greater than themselves. What happens in the earth that again, they go back to the same practices? What happened in each of these generations? And one of the things that um, happens just by virtue of the changing of the tongue or the confusion of the tongue is a separation of peoples. And this separation of peoples leads to a separation also that affects the earth in, in what we call the, the continent, into the continents with the, the generation of Peleg. So I would love it for you to do some research. It's kind of like, oh, that makes complete sense that obviously the continents were closer together because certain animals shouldn't have been on this side of the earth otherwise. And, you know, historically and agriculturally, there's certain plants that ended up here versus there. And, you know, how did this happen? This is how you kind of connect the pieces together. So for me, it's like a puzzle piece. And when I feel, when I get one piece of the puzzle, whether it be from an extra biblical source or from agricultural or from a history book, I'm like, great, this makes complete sense. Now this colors my understanding and, and deepens my understanding of what I just read in the scriptures. And it just adds more credence to thus saith the Lord for me. Um, for other people, maybe it's taking away from the journey of what did God really say? But as much as what God said, um, it's difficult for a lot of mankind to do what God said when they don't understand. Um, but it's not impossible. It's not impossible to, to obey what God commands and thus say the Lord. But for us, some of us, we wrestle with that until we need additional, we need supporting understanding. We need to not get the whys, but maybe just the how what's about what's happening here in this line. Bring me some understanding. Not that I need it to obey, but that I grow in understanding and my adherence to follow these instructions and to live them out continuously. So that's uh, for those who need it, feel free to you know, review some of the sources that I've mentioned. And we are now nearing the end and the beginning of the Sons of uh, Terah and specifically the, the life of Abram. What do you expect to happen? Um, of course, I know you know what's about to happen in the next uh, study, but what are you expecting from your Bible study? What is the breadcrumb that you think between Terah to Abraham that we as believers or we as people that are searching for truth and looking for how these instructions apply to us, what can be gained by understanding this, this family line? And how do you want to apply it uh, to your life on a day-to-day -day basis? That's really what we're asking you to set an expectation for and to begin your study by asking the Holy Spirit to give you understanding as you're reading next week's Torah portion, which is called Lech Lecha. Shalom, y'all. Thank you all for listening to this podcast episode. I would like to encourage each one of you to continue the dialogue with us. Your feedback and support keeps us going. So please like, share, subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to and dialogue with us. We're building out our social media programs and we're completing the website return.rest. We'll be online soon. So 
be in touch on those developments as they're coming up and continue the conversation with us. For the closing prayers, we will do the Etzkaim, known as the prayer to return. Etzkaim he, la makazikim ba, veton mekeha, ushaderakea, dake noam, vakol nivoteka, shalom. Hashibenu adonai elaheka, venashuva, kadesh, kadesh yamenu, kadesh yamenu. It is a tree of life to those who take hold of it, and those who support it are praiseworthy. Its ways are ways of pleasantness, and all its paths are peace. Bring us back, Lord, to you, and we shall come. Renew our days as of old. <laughs>